This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We are your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Today we're listening to Songs by Schubert. Here is something to whet your appetite. That was Schubert's Nacht und Träume, so beautifully performed by Martha Guth and pianist Spencer Meyer.
Today's episode features Ben Binder. He is the head of the musicology department at the Vancouver International Song Institute and also a professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. So the good news is that he is brilliant and charming and has seriously enlightening words to share. However, the bad news is that our microphone was acting up when we recorded a while back. So please bear with us. Uh, there is a little bit of sound fluctuation here today, but do enjoy Ben's story. The songs on this podcast reflect the culture of Vienna at the time they were written, and we now refer to that time as the Biedermeier era. There are a few things that I freely associate with the term, but it really wasn't until Ben explained the political context that things started to make sense to me. Yeah, it places the entire concept of the house concert or Schubertiade in a completely different light. So we asked Ben if there was a simple one-sentence way to explain Biedermeier culture. Um, I'm not sure there is, <laughs> especially if you're thinking about the Biedermeier, not just in terms of what might first come to mind, which would be elegant, tasteful furniture, right. <laughs> which is definitely part of the Biedermeier. The reason it's a part of the Biedermeier, which um, historically we're speaking about early 19th century Germany, Austria, Vienna, really a center Biedermeier culture. So when Schubert is active in the 18 teens and the 20s, Biedermeier is really in its heyday, and, we're, and really the spirit of the Biedermeier lasts all the way up until 1848 when you have political revolutions in Germany, more of a kind of democratic uprising. How did it begin? It began as a result of Napoleon. So after the French Revolution failed, Napoleon took power in France. It might seem like a weird place to begin to talk about German culture, but you'll see where I'm going with this. So... Um, Napoleon was a great romantic hero because he was an individual who was full of passion and through this force of his character led the French people to get behind him and institute a kind of democracy with him as the emperor. But that's, that's, that, that's another story. So um, the rest of Europe looked at that as the real beacon of hope, that it was possible to have more liberty, equality, and fraternity, and freedom for people within this new romantic ideology that was unfolding in the, in, in the 19th century. The problem was that Napoleon then got very greedy because when you base your whole society on passion, sometimes passions run away with you. So the French got very passionate and they tried to take over the rest of Europe. And they did for a while until finally the rest of Europe beat Napoleon back. At the Congress of Vienna, um, after Napoleon was defeated, all the powers of Europe, and, and most importantly for Schubert, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was represented there in, in Vienna. And they basically tried to figure out, well, how can we make sure that what happened in France doesn't happen in our own countries? How can we make sure that there's no more French revolutions and there's no more Napoleon? Mm. And the way they did that was to have a sort of agreement that governments would be more suspicious of their people. They would be more repressive. They would clamp down on any kind of political dissent. Uh, there were spies now everywhere. You couldn't just go to the market and speak your mind. You certainly couldn't have publications that spread ideas that were against the government strictures or, or even just the way society worked. Wow. And so um, from the Congress of Vienna all the way up until 1848, this is the everyday political social reality of the German-speaking country. Wow. And so it's natural that if you, in your public life you don't have room to speak freely you know, sort of take for granted a lot of the basic cultural freedoms that we have today, that you would turn inward, that you would focus not on your public life where you can talk to your coworkers, you know, around the water cooler, but you would focus on life when you came home with your family around the hearth fires and you would read poetry together and you would make music and you would play games and you would have nice things, nice creature comforts. 
Mm-hmm. And so that was the Biedermeier aesthetic. So today we look at, upon that and we say, oh, we go to Ikea and, you know, we can make our, our little apartments nice and we think it's all nice. It's like a fun hobby for us. But for them, it was, almost, it was like a lifeline. It was the thing that gave them some comfort and consolation in mm-hmm. a political, social environment that was actually very difficult day to day. You might even say it gives them, it gave, gave the individual a voice when they didn't have one. They could speak their mind at home. They could sing their songs at home without censor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how does music reflect this era? To talk about music in the abstract, sort of harmonies and forms and so on, is a whole complicated subject in itself. But I think if we're going to get into the topic of Schubert and his songs, um, the poetry is the best way to get mm-hmm. into that. I mean, you already, yeah. Erica, you just mentioned that just to make music at home and to recite poetry and to sing songs, this was an, a, an avenue, and an, an opening where you could express yourself and hear expressed mm-hmm. views that gave you a sense that there, you did have a voice. Of course, that poetry and that music, all that culture had to be itself somewhat repressed. Because if you went to the store and bought some songs, let's say, to sing at home, that's still a public exchange. And so there's a lot of subterfuge and intentional self-censorship. Or double meanings. Or double meanings, codes, uh, double speak. Well, not in the 1984 sense, but sure, sure. in the sense of a, of a code, exactly. So... When you look at the poetry of Schubert songs, a lot of times we see things that are sort of typical romantic conceits. You know, I wander among the flowers and I'm happy. <laughs> or just uh, more negative emotions about death or loneliness. And we tend to assume, you know, trans-culturally and you know, across history that these are, these are just sort of universals that Schubert and his poets were trying to meditate on and reflect about. And then most people look at them on the surface for what they are and do not look look deeper into it? Yeah, that they don't realize that this was, if you understand them in terms of their social political context, that they had an incredibly deep, specific, and powerful meaning to those people. That just learning even just the smallest bit about the history helps us unearth that and makes the song so much more rich and powerful. The first song that Ben talked about was Schubert's Der Wanderer, or The Wanderer, and I thought I would just insert a reading of the poem before we get back to Ben's interview. I come down from the mountains, the valley dims, the sea roars. I wander silently and am somewhat unhappy, and my sighs always ask, where? The sun seems so cold to me here, the flowers faded, the life old, and what they say has an empty sound. I am a stranger everywhere. Where are you, my dear land, sought and brought to mind yet never known, that land so hopefully green, that land where my roses bloom, where my friends wander, where my dead ones rise from the dead, that land where they speak my language, O land, where are you? I wander silently and am somewhat unhappy, and my sighs always ask, where? In a ghostly breath it calls back to me, there, where you are not, there is your happiness. So this is a song from 1816. It was one of Schubert's first big hits. It became kind of iconic for the Schubert song. You know, this transcription and Schubert's own wander fancy for piano just shows that you know, this was a tune, this was a song that people just knew, and he wanted to cash in on that, among other things. 
Um, one of the reasons is because the topic was so central to Biedermeyer thinking about the self, in, in really in a way people's day-to-day -day lives. You may think that this poem is not about that, it's about a very special person, or about you know how we feel occasionally, that we are a wanderer, that we are a stranger no matter where we are, we feel alienated, we feel isolated, we feel lonely. We keep wandering and we keep asking, Bo, we keep saying, you know, <laughs> where, where are we going? Where are we supposed to be? Am I home now? We never feel at home. Mm. So, uh, yes, you know, transculturally at any time and place, humans feel that way. But I don't think that's why this song was so popular, because it was the quintessential expression of that for all times. I think uh, it was so popular because everyone at that time felt themselves to be a kind of wanderer. Mm. Even if you had lots of money, you stayed at home all the time, <laughs> and your husband was a you know, upper middle class bureaucrat for the state going in and, you know, advising the government in some way and then coming home. and You had all the comforts you could ask for. You still felt like a wanderer because you were alone. You couldn't have that sense of fellowship and sharing in the public sphere, uh, that sense of community that was really so much a part of 18th century life, of enlightenment culture. I mean, more in France and in Paris, let's say, than Germany, which is more provincial. But nonetheless, no matter where you were in, in, in culture, it was kind of all the rage to feel yourself to be a stranger no matter where you were, spiritually, right. uh, with, with the only respite as death. Oh. Now, again, this, you may think, well, do they really want to die? Like, do they really <laughs> <laughs> hope to be in their grave soon? No, I mean, there's a little bit of, I wouldn't say play acting, but um, you know, a adopting a persona and using that to express something that is really true. Right. But it's intensified by the poetic expression. So no, they didn't actually want to literally die, and they didn't actually think that they were wandering through a harsh landscape and you know were about to fall over there with their walking stick, snow fell on them. But poetically, that's how they felt. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example yeah. of you know how it's sort of like this is a very crazy example just came to mind. But you know, gangster rap. <laughs> I think people who get into gangster rap, they don't necessarily feel themselves to be going out on the streets, right. you know, shooting people, uh, you know. Amongst other things, it gets mentioned in Yeah, <laughs> and you, you all know what I'm talking about. But it intensifies the kind of feeling of, you know, having to make it on your own uh, when the rest of society seems to be against you because you're a marginalized minority and, and so on. You know, you're in a certain economic class and you have these challenges. And this is a way of romanticizing and you know, creating a story that you can get excited about. That does express something that's real. I'm curious about the poet here of Der Wanderer is uh, a Mr. von Lübeck, who I don't know very much about. But my question really is, when Schubert shows his words, is there something in the music that you find to be particularly expressive of Biedermeier's style? Something's coming to mind for me right now that it's an issue that, or it's a, it's a compositional tool. A compositional tool that Schubert uses often, which is uh, the shifting between major and minor mode to deepen the expression of happiness or sadness, said right. very, very simply. And I wonder if that is a part of that coding process of having what seems to be a very happy moment expressed in a minor key, uh, and vice versa. Yeah, no, actually, that is a, that is a great example. I was a little... Um, I didn't think of the song immediately for that right. feature of Schubert's style, because even though there are major and minor sections, Schubert is alternating between the relative major and the relative mm -hmm. minor. 
which to one extent means that the song is really just in one key. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of like different, different rooms in the same house. <laughs> and yeah. But the house yeah. is, you know, the house that has four sharps, which is C sharp, minor, and major. <laughs> but still, we do have these modal alternations of major and minor. When he juxtaposes them, when we go from, let's say, C major directly to C minor, that's when they become most expressive. Right. But I think that that sense of the happiness that can immediately become a sadness and the sadness that has a happiness that can open up at any moment. This is the kind of melancholy, volve yeah. alternation that the beta minor was particularly known for. And yeah, I think that's a, a really important observation. Well, with that in mind, I think we'd like to listen to a song. We have a performance of Shen Yang, baritone and Vlad Istinka playing the piano of Der Andere. Take it away, guys.
Our next example is Der Jüngling und der Tod, which means the boy and death. And this has some good examples of a major minor shift we were talking about earlier. Take it away. Well, actually, specifically, we know that this song was written in response to Schubert's setting of death and the maiden, right. the girl and death, which is a very famous setting. We have two parts of the poem. And this was a poem that was written in the late 18th century, where the girl says, death, I'm afraid of you. Don't come near me. He says, don't worry, I'm here to ease your suffering. She goes with him. This song was written in 1817, a poem by one of Schubert's dearest friends, Josef von Spaun, who was, again, another one of these people who went to work every day, state bureaucrat, and then came home and wrote poetry and participated in this artistic subculture as a kind of respite. And uh, they wanted to explore this theme further. So they had another conversation where at first the boy speaks and says, the sun is sinking, oh, death, I wish that you would come. I wish my life would expire with it. Because finally, you know, death, come, come take me, take me to that enchanted land. So he wants to die. And then death says at the end, you know, it's very cool in my arms. I'm more than happy to oblige. <laughs> but it's not a kind of macabre. I, it's more like the father who says, yes, you have finally come home to me. And now truly be able to rest. Yeah, and that's because day to day existence. Right. It's not about death as a scary thing. Oh, life is so wonderful. I'm losing it. And be pain. It's going to be a cessation of pain. It's going to be a sense of peace and rest, which... A kind of rebirth, almost. Yeah, a rebirth of all the inchoate dreams and hopes, you know, that maybe you had as a child, you know. This is a boy. This is someone who's going to become a man. You might even think of this as, oh, I see what my life's going to be as an adult in Biedermeier culture. It's going to be miserable. It's going to be bleak and wan and, you know, no poetry. So I would rather die, which is to say, you know, to stay cocooned in that realm of art and culture, and but also not to have to 
enter into that machine-like society with no opportunity for self-expression. It may seem very grandiose, but I mean, this this is what made these kind of archetypal characters so powerful. And everybody at the time would have understood it in that context. It wouldn't have to have been explained. Right, exactly. I mean, we don't have copious letters between the two of them, Schubert and Spaun, saying, well, what do you mean by this? Does this reflect your meaning? Right. They were best friends. And right. This was just, this was the language in which they spoke. So we, we have to interpret that language historically. We have to unearth it to really understand what it was. So with that being said, we have the wonderful tenor William Ferguson and Marilyn MacDonald at the piano performing Der Jungling und der Tod.
next song that we're going to hear is Auflösung, also by Schubert, on a text by Meyerhofer. What can you tell us about Auflösung? This poem, again, on the surface of it, it, it seems very abstract. The poet is saying, hide, son, because the, the warmth of, of rapture is, you know, burning my, my limbs. So you have, this, have a sense of this, this abstract individual who's turning away from the world, turning mm -hmm. away from the sun, from the sounds, from the beauty of spring around mm -hmm. him just trying to pay attention to their own internal powers, their own mm -hmm. internal voices, their own internal sensations. And this poem can be read as a tribute to creative powers, aesthetic contemplation. The poet is saying, I'm not going to pay attention to the real world. I'm going to just focus on my own poetry. But it's also about, I'm not going to pay attention to the world that I live in. The world I live in is really miserable. <laughs> right. I'm going to just stay in this isolated, hermetically sealed chamber of my own feeling. So there's that sense of isolation and alienation. It's, it's a beautiful place to be, but it is always threatened by, you know, if someone wakes you up from your dream and you look out the window and you see the people drab going off to work. So it, it's a world that is your own internal world of beauty, but it's always under threat. So, but the musically speaking, the the language of the music is, in fact, very precocious. It's huge and very wild. And that is, is that in contrast to the language of, the, of the, what, you were, what you were just saying? Well, I think it's, I, well, it, the Schubert, and this is going to be a very bad performance of this, but demonstrate it. So that's how the piece begins, and then right. the singer comes in and explains. So all of that I would take to represent the um, the surging powers, the surging feelings that are that the poet is speaking about. Right. That are springing up in all the folds of my soul are springing up these 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 lovely powers. It's it's very abstract, but it's you know these sensations of ecstasy inside you. And so this is all what's being represented is not you know, the streaming of the sun rays or, you know, fish in a stream or right. rain or something. It's a very internal sensation. And it is a very big song, but it's, not, it's a very big, it's that big emotional world that we live in completely inside with eyes closed, focused on the inside. Mm -hmm. The odd, Schubert's audience would have known this poetry in and out. Right. And they would have spoken this language, this poetic language. And what they found so amazing about Schubert was how uncannily he was able to penetrate to the bottom of the text. Oh. And today, I think performers and listeners, anyone who loves these songs, what it means for Schubert to penetrate to the bottom of those texts is not just, oh, it's, the poem is about rain and it sounds like rain, or, oh, this is where the climax of the phrase is and this is where the person you know, discovers something. It's not just things that we can relate to no matter what time we live in. It's also very much entrenched in struggles and the preoccupations that they were having at this time. And I think, again, that, that sense of some of the more subtle or sophisticated harmonic 
relationships that may seem odd to us or you know, something we have to kind of explain away and figure out as performers to make them effective. Once you realize what he might have been going for, I think it opens up a lot more in terms of creative possibilities Absolutely. for a performer in shaping this. Performing Schubert's Auflösung are Dutch mezzo-soprano Christiana Stotin and German pianist Josef Breinel. If you're interested in learning more about today's performers, you can read their biographies at sparksandwirycries.com. What I find so meaningful about talking to you today is that you are able to put some of these songs that can be seen almost as flat in meaning, you've put them into a depth that gives us not only knowledge, but makes it seem more real, makes us feel more like this could be our culture as well when we're listening to these songs. Any final words of wisdom? Well, yeah, I think the art song as a whole, but Schubert is a great example of this, is so often considered to be an esoteric, rarefied form of very beautiful, but very refined aesthetic pleasure that we, we enjoy when we have a lot of money and, you know, we find it a little off-putting because it's often in a foreign language and we have to read the poem and uh, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of opera, but it still seems to be so complex. And it's just kind of like this little bonbon that, you know, is, is savored occasionally by this very limited stratum of society by a well-dressed singer in front of a lonely piano yeah <laughs> and um that is so not what <laughs> schubert's songs were that's not how they were done that's not what they were supposed to be 
this was a guy, like a young guy who was living in the city and was trying to make ends meet, was passionately connected to the art scene of his time and would, you know, his professional and his personal life merged together in the writing of these songs whose texts were often written by his friends and, you know, contemporaries that reflected the, the things that they really cared about day to day. Yes, in a, in a high culture kind of way. But we, I mean, we have that today. We have young people living in New York City where it's too expensive. It's, you know, the, we have a lot of really rich people who have all the power. And then we have young people who keep coming to New York to make it, to make it right, to be part of an arts. The arts culture is still really alive and important here. You have people making musical theater. You have people doing art exhibitions. You have people doing performances in, on the street and in you know, different kinds of unconventional places, trying to make a statement about their time and place, different kinds of cultural identities. I mean, Schubert's songs are doing the same thing. And I think yeah. just, just because it's Schubert, just because it's beautiful and happens to have the same musical language more or less than Mozart or Brahms, you know, yeah. it's like that music now just wears a tuxedo wherever it goes. And it really... <laughs> It, it doesn't, it's not enjoying wearing that tuxedo, I think. Yeah. <laughs> they were not doing it any favors by, by dressing by it that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, literally and figuratively. Mm. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. To... Please come back often and do this all the time. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was really great. Thank you. And thanks as always to our contemporary producer, Matthew Principe, without whom we could not be podcasting. Thank you, Matthew. This is Sparks of Wiry Cry. I'm Martha Goose. And I'm Erica Switzer.